you all are very aware by now, <laughs> we should be, that the purpose of this group is not just to be another group, but God gave information about what He is doing and that the new temple has to be built, the latter temple from Haggai and Zechariah, and that ultimately it is the two witnesses and the gathering of a tithe of God's people that he is going to bring to build his temple. We've been over that material many, many times, and I don't uh, wish to redo that today, but it leads into where we're going today. And I want to go back to the book of First Kings. In fact, I don't just want to, I'm going to. Uh, and... We have several examples in the Bible of the temple being built. In this case, Solomon. We also have the uh, testimony of Ezra and of Nehemiah about the temple and the wall of Jerusalem being built. And those all have an end-time application. <clears throat> but if we are among those, hopefully, who are selected to actually build the temple, I don't believe we were brought here to do that yet, I believe we were brought here to prepare a place to get into the right area and to make it possible so that there is a gathering point of understanding as well as a physical place to gather. And that God has warned us, as we saw in last week's sermon, not to go to the cultural centers and the cities of this world, but to come out of them and stay out of them. So we do have those instructions from many scriptures, and there is a reason beyond our personal safety for that, and that is that we have a job to do. And that job, ultimately, when the leadership is together and the remnant is here, will begin to build the temple and ultimately the order to build Jerusalem, and that be done as well. <clears throat> but it behooves us to consider the preparation and the process that we go through in order to do the job that is before us. So, as I said, we have Ezra and Nehemiah as some guideline about how God operated, what he did, and what the leadership did there. And we also have back here uh, a build-up to the building of the temple in Kings. Now, as we, I'm sure, are aware, and I won't go back through all the history... David, because of numbering Israel and being such a warlike man who actually took pleasure in killing, the, there was a certain necessity of fight in David's day, and God did not have a problem with that. But David liked it too much. You know, a lot of things come down to attitude. Uh, a lot of times we might keep the letter of the law and think we're okay, but our attitude may stink. And... Attitude is what it's really all about. If your attitude's right, you will tend to do that which is right. But if your attitude is wrong, it will lead you in negative ways. So, attitude is dealt with a great deal, and we'll find in today's sermon, back here in Kings, that attitude had an awful lot to do with what was done and how it was done, and what God was happy with and what God was not happy with. And that is all good instruction for us, because we are, as Solomon was, in a position to have a part in building this final temple. 
Now, we've been through Haggai and Zechariah a lot. We've been through Ezra and Nehemiah quite a bit. But, and maybe we've touched on this back here, but I want to uh, address it today that we might get a certain amount of instruction and guidance as to what our attitudes and our approach should be and how we should go about things. God wrote these things for a reason. And it is interesting to me, when you find yourself in a position of doing some of the things that have been done in the past, God has left a record for us to go back to and to see the pattern in it and to repeat the good parts of the pattern and to be careful to avoid those things which cause trouble with the exact same project. And this is the same project as building the temple of Solomon or of Ezra and Nehemiah or of Herbert Armstrong. We don't have the, the record of that scripturally except references to it and some of the things that went wrong with, I think, Hezekiah and of attitude in the book of Revelation chapter 3 and various other things that can be tied to the end time church and the prophecies, of course, are full of it. And we've been there and done that. So, <clears throat> God has opened this up, not because we're special, he has opened up understanding of these things because we are involved. And he had to pick somebody. So he looked down and thought, it will be to my glory if such as these can do this. There are none of us who are that bright. There are none of us who are that strong. There are none of us who are that capable. We're just people. And it is to the glory of God that he can take just people and do his work. So we can criticize one another all we want. Well, I say we can, and we sometimes do. Uh, the Bible says don't do that, but we do it anyway sometimes. And that could hurt us. <clears throat> but we need to be not critical of one another when we see that we are weak in base. But we need to have pity and compassion and love for one another and help each other to get the job done. They encouraged each other, it says there in Ezra, to get the job done, or in Nehemiah maybe it was. Uh, so we're here, to. we can recognize we lack a lot, but then let's help each other overcome the lack as opposed to criticizing one another for what we might lack. See, there's a total difference in attitude there. It's all about attitude is what it's about. Always has been. Always will be. Now, let's start in chapter 2 of First Kings. We know David was not able to build the temple because he was a bloody man. Uh, so he said, Solomon, your son, will do it instead says here, the days of David drew near that he should die, and he charged Solomon his son, saying... So here was his advice to his son. I go the way of all the earth. Be you strong, therefore, and you have sow yourself a man. Be the kind of man you ought to be. Don't be a boy all your life. Don't be irresponsible all your life. Grow up and show yourself to be a man is ultimately what he's saying here. And keep the charge of the eternal your God to walk in his ways, 
to keep his statutes and his commandments and his judgments and his testimonies. And he tells us to follow the law and the testimony there in Isaiah 7 and not to listen to those that have other messages from other places. So it's the same advice anywhere you go in the Bible. As it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn yourself. Whatever you do, wherever you go, whatever you take on, be sure that it's based upon doing the laws of God. That's something we all have to take the heart, uh, to heart. That the Eternal may continue His word which He spoke concerning me, saying, If your children take heed to their way, to walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul, there shall not fail you, said he, a man on the throne of Israel. So here we see the same contingencies that we deal with in the prophecies, the same contingencies that Christ put on the disciples in the New Testament. Nothing has changed. God always instructs us, guides us, to put God first in everything that we do. That is something that is scriptural and repeated all, all, all the time from Genesis to Revelation. And it is the advice given here, and David knew that Solomon was to be king of Israel and that he was to build a temple. God had made that very clear to David. So he's giving him fatherly advice. Now, if you look at the whole panorama of the life of Solomon, sometimes he followed that advice, sometimes he did not. He got himself in trouble uh, at times, and at times he obeyed God and stayed apart from trouble. He was a human being just like the rest of us, but God had chosen him to do a job, and God was going to make sure that that job got done in spite of Solomon and any failings and problems that he might have. God would deal with them and Solomon would get the job done because he had told David it would happen. And he's going to do the same thing here at the end. He's going to get the temple built despite any of your failings or mine. It will be done. So, he also gave him advice here about different ones and so on. Uh, and I won't go into all that for sake of time. I, I want to kind of hit in some ways the highlights here. But uh, just reading the top of the page, in my Bible it says, David dies, and then Solomon had to deal with some issues. As the new king, as the leader that God had appointed, he already had enemies. Maybe being a favored son of David had caused some of this in the beginning because his own brothers were against him. His own brothers tried to kill their own father and uh, abused his wives, and all kinds of things went on. So David had enemies and difficulties in his kingdom. But Haggai tells us that in building the latter temple, he said, in this place will I bring peace. In order to have peace, certain things must happen. Maybe let's turn back to Proverbs 26 just for a moment. You can't have peace without certain conditions. Now, I've 
talked about blessed are the peacemakers many times, those who create peace instead of make war, and how peace does not naturally come to human beings because human beings are intrinsically selfish and evil uh, to the core. That's just the way it is, and that's why we don't have it. But here in Proverbs 26... uh, Yeah, verse 20 is what I want. Uh, It says, Where no wood is, there the fire goes out. If you have a fire in your fireplace, and you don't put any wood in it, the fire goes out. So he uses this analogy here. Uh, If you don't feed something, it will die. It will go away. So where there is no tail-bearer, the strife ceases. Direct analogy. If there's strife, it's being caused. Uh, there are those who are, by tail-bearing, by stabbing people in the back, by letting their negativity be known, are causing strife in the group. And that has to go away one way or another. If we're to have peace to build a temple, it either has to be repented of or the tailbearer has to go. There can be no in-between. Now, you would always hope that repentance would come and that the tailbearing would stop. And we are commissioned by God not to listen to it. And those who listen are just almost as culpable as the one spreading it. So whoever is spreading it and gets people to listen is offending the little ones and needs a millstone tied about the neck and thrown into the sea because they are dragging people down and away. And that must stop. God deals with it very clearly here. As coals are to burning coals and wood to fire... So is a contentious man to kindle strife. An attitude of contention and contending and negativity is ungodly. And one way or another, it has to stop because God says when the temple is going to be built, he will cause and bring peace. Now that means that at some point, if he has to take a hand, he will. Those who are causing strife will either quit it, repent of it, change their attitude, or they will go away or die. God has used all those methods in the past. Now, I know a lot of that goes on, and I know mostly where it comes from. And I know that when some people are gone from here, it gets more peaceful. When they come back, it gets worse. Or sometimes when they're gone by phone and by email or whatever, they continue to do their evil work. But God will only take it so long. I tolerate a lot because I want to give people space to repent. I don't want to come down too hard. I don't want to run them off. But I'll guarantee you one thing. I am not in this for numbers, and I never have been. If we get down to 15 or 20, that's okay. But we will have peace.
And we'll see that in this story. Is the reason I went ahead and came here to start with. The words of a talebearer are his wounds, and they go down into the innermost parts of the belly. Burning lips and a wicked heart are like a pot shared covered with silver dross. We can cover ourselves over with silver on the outside and act like we're okay, like Christ told the Pharisees they were. You look good on the outside, but inside there's this seething anger and seething sin. And anger of that nature is sin because it is hate and it is murder. Uh, we can murder people uh, with our words. Assassination of character. And to kill somebody spiritually is a far greater offense than actually shooting them or stabbing them or killing them physically. In one case, you're dealing with physical limited life. In the other case, you're dealing with eternal life. And God will hold us far more accountable at causing spiritual disdain and spiritual injury and harm by being negative and putting people down and perhaps discouraging them or getting them to turn away. Now, the talebearer always thinks he's right, of course, and he has his story right. And in some cases, that may be true. In some cases, it is fabricated. It's the attitude that is the problem. If the attitude were not there, then the negativity would stop. And you can cover it over all you want, but if it's wrong on the inside, it won't work. He that hates dissembles with his lips and lays up deceit within him. He festers inside and won't get over it. When he speaks fair, believe him not. He tries to make noises of peace and happiness and health and everything's wonderful. Perhaps speaks in some ways of the positive. He says, don't believe it. For there are seven abominations in his heart whose hatred is covered by deceit. Smile, act like everything's okay, and then it's the work behind the wall and behind the back and so on. Whoso digs a pit shall fall therein. See, it takes care of itself sooner or later. It isn't something you always have to put hands on and deal with. But you are to be a Christian. You are not to allow this to happen. You are to stop it in its tracks. I cannot live your life for you. I can only instruct you, as I am today, in the things you must do. And if you allow a person to continue with the negativity, then you are aiding and abetting the sin. And it is a sin. And you become a sinner as well. And it's easy to say, well, so-and-so's a tail-bearer. Well, you're a tail-listener. And if you listen, you too are sinning before God. And you have a responsibility either to leave or to tell them no or to change the subject and not hear it. Are we so weak and so irresponsible that we cannot say no? Remember, David told Solomon, stand up as a man. Don't put up with things that are ungodly. 
And that's what the force of the whole thing was about. Are we enough of a Christian to not sin ourselves? And do we aid and abet and enable those who might have a problem in that area? Whoso digs a pit will fall there in, and he that rolls a stone, it will return upon him. A lying tongue hates those that are afflicted by it, and a flattering mouth works ruin. So, if someone puts their tongue on you, they hate you. That's all there is to it. That's what the scripture says. Now, let's go back to Kings. After that thing, we have to understand that there will be enemies. Remember the story of Ezra, where enemies came and tried to disrupt what was going on, didn't want the leadership to succeed in what they were doing, and talked down about it. And it ceased, depending on which commentary you read, for either 14 to 17 years before building the temple could even proceed because of enemies. And the reason I brought up Proverbs and the reason I bring up that in Ezra is because the same is true here with Solomon. After David died, Solomon had those who had things against him. And I won't read all of it, but as I started to say here at the top of my uh, Bible, it says Solomon puts Adonijah to death. So he had to solve some problems before the project could go forward. And sometimes, and this is history, that has to be done. You have to have a clear slate. You cannot accomplish things when you have those who are talking against negative, pushing the other way, it can't happen. So in this case, he killed Adonijah. He put Joab to death, a man who had been very high in David's kingdom. And then Shimei was first confined to Jerusalem. And then he left Jerusalem after being told, don't leave. So when he came back, the end of chapter 2, they caused Shimei also to die. Now, there were problems there with these men's attitude toward God and man and the things that they did. So Solomon took care of that. Problems come to the point, they simply have to be solved. If we repent and God gives us space to do that, then we can have opportunity to continue. But if we don't, either man or either ourselves, as Proverbs says, or man, the leadership, or God, will take care of it. Now, I prefer to let the person take care of it, if at all possible, and not have to interfere. If over time they continue to cause damage and affect people's attitudes then I am forced to move and do something about it, as Solomon did. And even as in Ezra or Nehemiah, he gave the men and the family swords and spears and bows and told them, guard yourselves. If anybody tries to stop your work, stop them. So at times he told men to solve the problems. 
That's New Testament as well if we go into it. Here we see this story starting with Solomon being given a charge by his dad, and then immediately he had to take care of some problems. So it's on three levels. And now sometimes you leave it be and let God take care of it. And he did with Korah and various others, Ananias and Sapphira. I mean, the, the story is all through the Bible where God finally did take care of it. He even says he would take care of the rebellious men of Anatoth. So I prefer to let God do it, and I prefer to back off and give people every chance to change an attitude, if, if at all possible. In those days, it was quite easy. Solomon just said, fall on him and cut his head off. Oh, okay, solve that problem, now let's move on. So several of those occurred before he could get around to doing the job that needed to be done. Let's go to chapter 3. <clears throat> and Solomon made affinity with Pharaoh king of Egypt and took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had made an end of building his own house and the house of the Eternal and the wall of Jerusalem round about. Now, we are charged with doing both those things, all those things, the temple there in Haggai in particular, and Jerusalem uh, in Daniel 9, the wall of Jerusalem. So it has to be done. Only the people sacrificed in high places because there was no house built into the name of the Eternal until those days. So people were leaning to their own understanding, doing their own thing, and even worshiping pagan gods at wrong altars. And Solomon loved the Eternal, walking in the statutes of David his father. Uh-oh. Only he sacrificed and burnt incense in high places. So even he, though he feared God and knew God to some degree and was obeying God, Solomon already had a problem. He was doing the same thing the people were, uh, going to the high places of the places of pagan worship. Now, it does say in other places that Solomon had the wives that he married of all the different races and peoples and nations of the earth, uh, that they turned his heart from God into their false gods. And that is indeed true. It got worse and worse as he went through his life. But he already had a problem right here at the very beginning of this project. And I think it's interesting and, and good that we make notice of this, that God had made a promise of what he was going to do, and he selected Solomon to do it, and God was very aware of Solomon's weaknesses, of his failings, and even of a degree of false worship, idolatry. And yet he chose him to do the job anyway. Now, none of the men of God have ever been perfect. None of the leaders that God has selected to do some of his work on this earth have ever been perfect. To put that another way, they've all been imperfect, if you will. And God was very aware of that. So was David. He would not have charged Solomon to grow up and be a man and encourage him to keep the commandments of God if he hadn't known that Solomon did have some deficiencies, okay? What man ever sends his son out the front door of his house and says, Son, I know you're perfect and you're ready to go save the world? I don't think so. If anything, our fathers are, with their own sons are sometimes 
pretty uh, negative toward them in some respects. Because they've been watching you for the last 16, 18, 20, 25 years. And they know you got problems. They know you're not perfect. So it's with some misgiving that they see you walk out the front door, especially if there's been an argument and a fight and you haven't been getting along and, and the, the young buck trying to show his horns and the old man saying, no, you won't, and all the stuff that goes on. So I don't think that David was under any illusion that Solomon was perfect. He was a chosen son, but he was probably also a spoiled brat to a degree because of his mother and because of the loss of the son, because of the, the sin of David and, uh, and Bathsheba to begin with, who died, and now this son came along. So I'm sure he had an awful lot of favoritism shown, and that's one reason his brothers hated him and hated David, among other reasons, I'm sure, but that was one of them for sure. So Solomon was imperfect, and let's make note of that. Now, if you find that Ezra and Nehemiah weren't perfect when they built the temple, that shouldn't come as a shock. If we heard or read that Herbert Armstrong was imperfect and had some problems, maybe even some very serious problems, if we had been aware of these stories back here, perhaps we would not have gotten ourselves so twisted out of joint over some of his difficulties, whatever they may have been. I knew Herbert Armstrong pretty well personally, and I knew him not to be a perfect man. I did not spend my time at night awake trying to figure out what all was wrong with Herbert Armstrong, nor did I talk behind his back and point out what I thought were his failings. That would have served no purpose. I tried to support him as the leader. I tried to overlook anything that I thought might have been askew or awry and minimize it and ignore it. And I still respect him to this day. There are others who focused on his problems, his sins or his alleged sins, and they are not with us today. There is a warning there. Solomon took care of it in his day. And God is taking care of it in the former temple, the Worldwide Church of God. He blew us apart, and here we find ourselves. Now, are we learning from that, or are we still going on in the same way that some did, and will we sacrifice ourselves? There's an awful lot to be learned right here in this story, especially compared with other stories in the Bible where some of the same things arose. Anyway, uh, he had his problems. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. A thousand burnt offerings did Solomon offer upon that altar. Now that would be offensive to God. This was the highest of the high places of pagan worship. And Solomon went there with a thousand sacrifices. Now, here's your chance to stab old Solomon in the back and say he is not fit to do the job, God, the job that God gave him to do. If you want to be in that kind of an attitude, here's your chance. In Gibeon, the Eternal appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. Here was Solomon burning incense to false gods 
not at the monastery in Philadelphia, but at the Vatican. The highest of high places, if you will. In the Temple of Diana in Paul's day, if you will. The worst place he could have gone. And while he was there sacrificing to false gods, the God of heaven and earth, who is a jealous God, chose to show mercy and give Solomon a dream right there in that place. In the midst of paganism. Does that sound right to you? That's what God did. Maybe God realized that with Solomon's knowledge and his dad's history, that if he approached Solomon right there, Solomon would see his sin in a clearer fashion. Maybe it would make more impact under those circumstances. So that's where he approached him. He had his reasons. Now, he didn't jump all over Solomon. He had chosen him to do a job. He knew Solomon's problems. And he approached him right when he was in the middle of the biggest one. And he said, ask what I shall give you. What an incredible thing that God would put aside a very wrong thing that Solomon was doing and ask him of any blessing he might want from God. God's ways are beyond our understanding, aren't they? Some of the things God does, we can't grasp because we don't think the way God thinks. But this was an enormous thing. Now, when God tells us to love our enemies and to do good those who despitefully use us and persecute us, he lives what he says. He was willing to overlook even this rank idolatry and paganism, which puts you as an enemy of God, really, doesn't it? Idolatry is the first command. And yet God was willing to do good to Solomon even under those circumstances. He causes it to rain on the just and the unjust, doesn't he? Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, You have showed to your servant David, my father, great mercy, according as he walked before you in truth and in, righteous, in righteousness and in uprightness of heart with you. And you have kept for him this great kindness that you have given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. Now, in spite of Solomon's activity here, he recognized that God is a righteous and a just God. And because of his kindness to David, had put Solomon in this position. Solomon didn't say, well, I'm great. I'm wonderful, and I can see why you chose me. Didn't approach it that way at all. And now, O eternal my God, you have made your servant king instead of David my father, and I am but a little child. I know not how to go out or come in. There were millions of people there that he had been so inadequate. I feel like a little child here. I don't know how to do this. My dad did it, and I watched him, but now it's suddenly on me, and it's far bigger than I am. I can't do this. And your servant is in the midst of your people, which you have chosen, 
a great people that cannot be numbered nor counted for multitude. Millions of people were under his kingdom at this point. Give therefore your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, that I may discern between good and bad. For who is able to judge this so great a people? It's very hard to make judgments. People come and they have their side of the story. Somebody else comes, they have their side of the story. And it's very difficult to make righteous judgment because you don't know who's lying, who's seeing it through the prism of their own glasses and eyes and how they color it to their side or they have faulty memories or they, you know, on and on it goes what people can do to make themselves look right and the other person look wrong. So he said, this is a very, very difficult thing to do. So he asked for wisdom, basically, understanding heart, so they could make righteous judgments. The speech pleased the Eternal that Solomon had asked this thing. And God said to him, because you have asked this thing, and have not asked for yourself long life, neither have you asked riches for yourself, nor have asked the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern judgment. Behold, I have done according to your words. At least Solomon was not selfish about it here. He asked for understanding so that he might help the people live righteously. I've done your words. I've given you a wise and understanding heart, so that there was none like you before you, neither after you shall any arise like you. And I've also given you that which you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that there shall not be any among the kings like you all your days. He asked for the right thing, and God said, all right, as a bonus, I'm going to give you all these other things that other people would have asked for. But you didn't. So God is working with him here to help him get past his problems and to help him serve God. And he's willing to work with us as well. So, in preparation to build the temple, there had to be some things that were taken care of and made right ahead of time. We go on to chapter 4, verse 25. And Judah and Israel dwelt safely, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, from Dan to Beersheba, all the days of Solomon. That is uh, a rare instance in the history of Israel, that everyone dwelt in peace under his vine and fig tree. At the end of Zechariah, well, you find it at the beginning of Micah, where he tells us to separate from the cities and go out in the wilderness to live, and that he will give the vine and fig tree there. And he says at the end of Zechariah 3, that here in the end time, those who are selected to build a temple will also dwell in safety under their vine and fig tree. There are very few instances of that in the Scripture. But what we are living and are about to experience today is going to be the same thing because of where it is listed, and that's in Zechariah 3, just before uh, chapter 4, where the foundation that has been laid is going to be put into uh, operation and the temple be built. Verse 30, And Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the children of the east country and all the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than all men, and names a bunch of names. Then they had, of course, the dividing of, or the threat to divide the baby that one woman claimed and it was the other one's. What an incredible 
insight and perception and wisdom. They say, well, let's just cut it in half. Which one do you want? The, the, the real mother showed up in a hurry because she would. And the other woman really didn't care about the baby. She just was fighting. Let's go to chapter 5. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent his servants to Solomon, for he had heard that they had anointed him king in the room of his father. For Hiram was ever a lover of David. Hiram highly respected and loved David a great deal, served David in helping get the things ready for the temple to be built, even though David wasn't going to build it, and Hiram knew that. But he was there to help. Always a helper, not a hinderer. And Solomon sent to Hiram, saying, You know how that David your father could not, my father could not build a house in the name of the Eternal his God for the wars which are about him on every side, till the Eternal had put them under the soles of his feet. So he says, You know how it was in David's day. There were enemies, there were problems. David was so beset by enemies and fighting them that he couldn't have peace in his kingdom and couldn't accomplish this. But now he says, It has occurred. And David, I mean Solomon, killed some of the remaining enemies so that they could focus on the, the project at hand and get it done rather than always tilting at windmills and fighting battles. So you see, God cleared the decks, if you will. He made sure that enemies were gone, naysayers, talebearers, any who spoke negatively who were in a bad attitude, God took care of. Now, this is true in any age you want to discuss, from Genesis to Revelation. Now, God is also doing the same thing today. He will take care of those who show negativity. There is no room for it, because we have a project ahead of us. And therefore, God is going to clear the decks, just like he did in this story. Verse 4, he said, God put them down under the soles of his feet, so he was walking dust to dust. Solomon was walking on the enemies of his father and his own enemies. But now the eternal my God has given me rest on every side, so that there is neither adversary nor evil occurrent. And behold, I propose to build a house to the name of the eternal my God, as the eternal spoke to David my father, saying, Your son, whom I will set upon your throne and your room, he shall build an house to my name. Zechariah 4 says, Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the eternal. <coughs> And he who laid, he who hand, whose hands laid the foundation of the temple will finish it. I did not name this congregation a pretentious name in any sense, because I already knew very clearly the proper name for the house of the great God, as Herbert Armstrong put it on the auditorium in Pasadena, and as Ezra says the house of the great God. I knew that was the name for the latter temple, and that he whose hands had laid that foundation would finish it. And therefore, I simply call this a congregation of God, some of God's people, who are sent here to prepare the way so that when all of these prophecies come to pass, 
there will be a place for God's people to gather. So he set his mind to do this, and it will be accomplished. God will make sure that it is done in peace. He even says beyond enemies within that he will put a wall of fire around it and a covert from the heat and protection from enemies so that the work can go on in peace. That's in Isaiah 4 and in uh, Zechariah 2 and in other places. But he will do just that. So whether it's a wall of fire and a covert from the heat, good weather and protection from enemies, or whether in David and as in David and Solomon's case, they just became dust under the feet. God made sure that the work could be done in peace. So expect that, because he says there in Haggai 2, in this place will I bring peace. No other place, this place. And he will do whatever he has to do to accomplish that, whether people are subtracted, whether people repent, or are removed more forcibly. God will have peace. That is a lesson for us from the past. And we need to be sure that we do all that we possibly can before God to be sure that we are preserved to continue the work rather than becoming a casualty because of our attitudes. I've been trying to get this across for a long, long time to all of us. Because all of us speak negatively at times. All of us get discouraged at times. Some have chosen to take it just personally. That's not the way it is intended. I say these things because I need to be sure my attitude is right. I say them because I know we all need to have a right attitude. I'm not picking on anyone. I'm simply reviewing a story here that is history for us to study and learn from. And it is timely because we are set to do and sent to do exactly the same thing here that Solomon was doing. And therefore, what we have here in the story is instructive to us, both in a positive way and to avoid pitfalls so that it can be positive. See what I mean? And it came to pass, chapter 6, in the 480th year after the children of Israel come out of the land of Mitzrayim, that uh, end of the verse, he says that he began to build the house of the eternal. And then it describes that somewhat. Uh, I don't want to get into all the detail of it. Let's go down to verses 11 through 14. And the word of the eternal came to Solomon, saying, this is chapter 6, verse 12. Concerning this house which you are in building. So he had chosen him to do it. He had let him get started, but the Word of God still came as a reminder. The Word of God is always before you and me to remind us of our focus and why we're here and what we're to do. And in this case, it's talking directly to us, just as it was directly to Solomon, because we're doing the same thing Solomon was. Here's his advice. 
If you will walk in my statutes and execute my judgments and keep all my commandments to walk in them, then will I perform my word with you, which I spoke to David your father. And I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. So Solomon built the house and finished it. Now he tells us the exact same thing there in Zechariah 2. He says, I will come and dwell with you. I will help you. I will protect you to build my house. And he charges us to diligently obey him so that this will happen. And God does it in a positive way. He expects us to do what we have been instructed to do. Not to be naysayers, but to be positive and to help one another get the job done. We have our own spiritual temple to build and to clean up. We have to be clean that bear the vessels of the eternal Isaiah 52. So we have that responsibility. And then we have the responsibility of building up the spiritual temple and godliness and helping and encouraging rather than discouraging one another. And then we have a physical temple and city to build as well. So we have three levels of temple to build. And he says of us he will do the same thing in those prophecies. Now let me go to uh, 7, chapter 7. I'm just picking up some highlights here. Verse 51, 7, 51. So was ended all the work that King Solomon made for the house of the Eternal. And Solomon brought in the things which David his father had dedicated, the silver, the gold, the vessels, uh, did he put among the treasures of the house of the Eternal. Now we also have to recover and have to have the treasures of the temple. That was done in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah when the king Cyrus sent them with the people to put in the temple. It was done in the days of Solomon where he gathered those things up and brought them. Now in Isaiah 45, it tells us that God will, or 44 and 45, it says that an end time Cyrus will also be shown these things and come to possess them and that he will give them to us for the use in the temple. Both the temple service and the treasures that are needed to probably do gold gilding and all those things. Now, over the last few years, I've spent some time with, I think, the man who is involved in that. He does not know God. I understand that. I don't pal around with him. In fact, I don't even much care for a lot of his beliefs, religiously, for sure and the way he treats people at times. But then Nebuchadnezzar was kind of the same way, and so were others. Herod, that John the Baptist worked with, Pharaoh, that Joseph and Moses worked with, and on and on it goes. And in all that, at times I've been accused of, being, of having gold fever or whatever. I could care less, brethren, about being rich. I already get too much to eat, I think. I sleep warm at night. I'm getting old. What would I do with all that wealth if I had it? Who cares? I do not have gold fever. I pursue only these things because God introduced me to the man that he is showing where they are. 
And it is my bound duty to God to be involved in building the temple and to have those things that are necessary to do it. So let's get the story straight. It is only for the purposes of God that I care. I think I can say that very honestly. God is going to show through those treasures given to His people Jacob in time, spiritual Israel, that He is God. That's the whole point. I'm not, you're not, we're not. God is. And Cyrus isn't either. He's a man who does not know God, who is going to be shown who God is. And I'll be real happy the day he says, your God is God. I don't think he'll repent. I don't think he'll change. But like rulers of the past, he'll recognize that God is there and God is alive. We shall see. But that is history. Now let's go to chapter 8. Here's where I originally intended to start in this story, but the more I con contemplated it, we had to go all the way back to see uh, the ramifications of what had to occur before things could move forward. And that's important for us to comprehend as well. If we are in any way holding anything back or causing difficulties for anybody, we need to get over it and get past it and get our attitudes right. If we don't do that, God will simply take care of the problem at some point. And maybe he's already beginning to. I do not know. We will see. Chapter 8. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the chiefs of the fathers of the children of Israel, to King Solomon of Jerusalem, that they might bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Eternal out of the city of David, which is Zion. Zion and Jerusalem are all combined in the same area of the original beginning of Eden. And all the men of Israel assembled themselves unto King Solomon at the feast in the month Ethanim, which is the seventh month. Trumpets. That's when we had our first uh, phone hookup was on trumpets in 2000. All right, let's go down to verse 12. Uh, then spoke Solomon, the Eternal said that he would dwell in the thick darkness. I have surely built you a house to dwell in, a settled place for you to abide in forever, as long as he would live. And the king turned his face about and blessed all the congregation of Israel, and all the congregation of Israel stood. And he said, Blessed be the eternal God of Israel, which spoke with his mouth to David my father, and has with his hand fulfilled it. So after the temple was finished, Solomon addressed the people and wanted to talked to them about the circumstances and what had occurred. And he said, Blessed be the eternal God of Israel, which spoke with his mouth to David my father, and has with his hand fulfilled us. I read that. Since the day that I brought forth my people Israel out of Mitzrayim, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel to build a house, that my name might be therein. But I chose David to be over my people Israel. And it was in the heart of David my father to build a house for the name of the eternal God of Israel. And the Eternal said to David, my father, Whereas it was in your heart to build a house to my name, you did well 
that it was in your heart. God complimented David that he wanted to do something for God, but because of certain things he was held back. Nevertheless, you shall not build a house, but your son shall come forth out of your loins. He shall build a house to my name. And the Eternal had performed, has performed his work, word that he spoke. And I am risen up in the room of David my father and sit on the throne of Israel, as the Eternal promised, and have built a house for the name of the Eternal God of Israel. Now I hope that with what we've already gone through and the negative part so far, that we overcome and we grow and we diligently obey and we accomplish what God has set us to do so that someday this pattern might also be repeated that we can stand up and say, we've done what you ask us to do. Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing? The things that we have been reading about, talking about, preaching about now for 16 years are going to come to pass if we do our part and we'll be able to stand as Solomon did and say these things. Verse 22, And Solomon stood before the altar of the Eternal in the presence of all the congregation of Israel and spread forth his hands toward heaven. So he addressed the people and said, We've done what we were asked. Then he addresses God. Says a prayer before the people. And he said, Eternal God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, who keep covenant and mercy with your servants that walk before you with all their heart. On many prophecies, it talks about how God is going to show that he is God. Ezekiel says dozens of times, and they shall know that I am the Eternal. He says of Cyrus, I'll show you these things. And by them they will know that I am God. That's repeated over and over. Those who walk before you with all their heart. How many times have I preached that out of Jeremiah and other scriptures that we need to do? It was because of our apathy and Laodiceanism that we were scattered in the first place. And God does not want apathy. He does not want anything but wholeheartedness. He wants us neither hot nor... He said rather, he doesn't want us lukewarm. Either hot or cold is better. Lukewarm is kind of bleh. And we were bleh. Now he wants heat. He wants us to serve God with all our heart. And to have the attitude of God. Here he said, mercy with your servants that he had. How much mercy do we have with one another? That's part of the lesson. God is merciful. What about us? Who have kept with your servant David, my father, that you promised him. You spake also with your mouth and have fulfilled it with your hand as it is this day. He says, God, you've done it. Now we're in the position of still preparing, but hopefully someday we'll say, God, you've done it. Wow. Therefore now, Eternal God of Israel, keep with your servant David, my father, that you have promised him, saying, There shall not fail you a man in my sight to sit on the throne of Israel, so that your children take heed to their way, that they walk before me as you have walked, as you have walked before me. And now, O God of Israel, let your word, I pray you, 
be verified, which you spoke to your servant David, my father. And that is my prayer, and I hope yours. That all of these prophecies we've read about the scattering and about the regathering will be verified. Perhaps we have grown a bit apathetic. Perhaps we have even begun to have a certain level of disbelief, either in my leadership or in the amount of time that this has taken, or whatever. But God always does those things, doesn't He? Weren't Ezra and Zerubbabel and Joshua held back for 14 to 17 years? And couldn't festering bad attitudes and apathy and lack of obedience set in in that period of time? You bet it could. God will sort out who gets hot and stays hot and those who become apathetic or for whatever reasons begin to give up and look elsewhere. God will see to it that His Word is verified. If we don't do it, He'll get somebody that will, because He's promised that these things will happen. Therefore now, Lord God of Israel, uh, let's see, no, I've already read that. Uh, verified, verse 26. Let's go to 27. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Tells us He will in Zechariah 2. Emmanuel, God with us. Behold, the heaven and heaven of heavens cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have builded. It was a beautiful house, covered with gold, as fancy as human beings can make something. But Solomon realized that compared to the universe, it wasn't very big. It wasn't big enough for the God of all eternity. Yet have you respect to the prayer of your servant and to his supplication, O eternal my God, to hearken to the cry and to the prayer which your servant prays before you today, that your eyes may be upon, open toward this house night and day, even toward the place of which you have said, My name shall be there, that you may hearken to the prayer which your servant shall make toward this place. And hearken you to the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they shall pray toward this place. And hear you in heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. Now, Herbert Armstrong built a house they call the House of the Great God in Pasadena. It was a beautiful building. And he encouraged us all to serve God with all our heart. And yet, we grew weary, we grew apathetic, we grew sinful, we grew... Lay it a sin. And in spite of all that Herbert Armstrong did to glorify the name of God, we failed. And we've had a curse upon us ever since. The whole church, people sometimes say, well, there must be a curse around here. Things are falling apart. We're all under the curse. I think we'll read about it here in chapter 9 before we're done. This isn't any particular curse. Haggai talks about the famine of the Word. Amos 8 talks about the famine of the Word. He talks about the spiritual sword and famine and pestilence and all those things. Yes, we're under a curse. All of us. The whole church. 
And God is sorting out the ones to whom he will remove the curse from and begin to bless. And he will have his tithe, his 10%, and he will bring them. The curse will be removed. Our sins will be removed as a cloud. In one day, it says, in several places. It isn't a particular curse on this congregation that some are beginning to mouth among themselves. It is a curse upon us all, and God is currently sorting out from the many called He is choosing few. And we need to get that. It will be an individual curse, not a curse on a particular organization, but upon the leaders and the members of any organization who does not turn to God with their whole heart. And out of all the groups, there will be some who do. But 90% will not. And wherever those people are, and whatever group or lack of group they have, God will stir them to come and build a temple. Herbert Armstrong, in one sense, failed. He did build the former temple. But it had problems, and God blew it away. So we even have recent history we need to learn from. Our leadership will not be perfect either. The two witnesses will not be perfect. Ninety percent of the church will reject them. Kind of a sad story about human nature, isn't it? They'll look to the men, they'll look to their problems, they'll look to doctrines they think are wrong, and they will not respond. Ninety percent, actually a little over ninety percent. I hope we're not among them. Now let's see, I'll try to pick it up wherever I left off here. I think we're down about verse 30. And hearken you to the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel, and forgive, it says. We all come short. Solomon did. He felt small at that time in his own eyes. And he knew that the people were not perfect either, so he asked God's forgiveness. We need to keep that in mind. This is a historical record for us. If any man trespass against his neighbor, and an oath be laid upon him to cause him to swear, false witness, true witness, whatever, and the oath come before your altar in this house, the house that God was building, that had just built, if trouble comes, then hear you in heaven and do and judge your servants, condemning the wicked to bring his way upon his head, and justifying the righteous to give him according to his righteousness. Now Solomon had already said originally to God, I can't handle this. It's too big for me. I'm like a child. I don't know when to come in and when to go out. And here, once the temple was done, he said, Father, you make the judgments. You determine who is right and who is wrong. You take care of the problem. You settle the difficulties. 
Now, Ezekiel 33 says the same thing. Each man will either repent and be blessed or be cursed based on his own doings. We read this at the very beginning in Proverbs 20, or 26, verse 20, that it will come upon their own head. And God says that in several places. So you can be negative, you can be against, you can talk down, you can stab in the back, you can do all that stuff. But God is going to make a judgment. Take heed. Be careful. Be very careful. Then hear you in heaven, judge your servants, condemning the wicked and bringing it on his own head. Verse 33, when your people Israel be smitten down before the enemy because they have sinned against you and shall turn again to you and confess your name and pray and make supplication to you in this house, then hear you in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them again to the land which, was gave, which you gave to their fathers. All right, we were in worldwide. We were the church of God. And we sinned. And God spewed us out. And this applies directly to us now as we are preparing to build the latter temple. That God have mercy and forgive and bring us again to the land that he gave to our fathers. And he has shown us, no one else much yet, but he's shown us where that is. Can we deny that? Are we in disbelief? What do you do when you prove a lot of things like the Passover, like Emmanuel, like the calendar, like a lot of things that we have learned here that you didn't learn somewhere else? And you walk away from it. Where do you go? Didn't you prove it? Did you just believe it because Daryl said it? Or did you not ever really believe it anyway? And now you're finding other things to do and other places to go. What do you do with this knowledge that you have? Do you deny it and lose it? What has been the history of those who have left this organization all the way back? They have gone to other organizations, or they have given up entirely, or they sit and murmur among themselves, knowing there's something here but not what to do. Do they get better when they leave here? I know people who gave up the calendar, who gave up all the things we've learned just to get a paycheck in another organization and gave up everything that they learned here. Now, people say, we're under a curse because we have problems here. Well, what about those who've left over the years? There have been quite a few. Can you say they were blessed for leaving this cursed place? Have they prospered financially? Have they prospered spiritually? Have they gone on to grow in grace and knowledge? And do they have more knowledge now than we do? You better be careful when you start proclaiming a specific curse. You better be careful. I'm not saying we're not cursed. I already said the whole church was cursed and us with it. We're trying to repent and come out from under it and be forgiven and go on and build the temple the way God wants it built, not the way it was built and failed. So he says, when we repent, 
please hear from heaven and bless us and lead us to the land of our fathers. We kept the feast at Jerusalem for the first time in 2,000 years this year. I believe the true Jerusalem. I don't know the exact location, but I know it's very close to where we pitched camp. And Zion is here, not somewhere else. And this is the land of the promise where Abraham walked because that's where we are. And it's where the world where the world has heard the word of God is from the southwestern United States, be it Pasadena or here. Let's not go into all that. I don't have time. But it's in the story here, isn't it? Verse 35, when heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they've sinned against you, if they pray toward this place and confess your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them. Isn't that what happened? Didn't we have a spiritual famine of the word? Nationwide, worldwide? Amos 8? Didn't we, as Haggai says, not produce fruit? And even to the beginning of the remnant, it says, they didn't produce fruit. But from the 9th and 24th, from this day forward, from the time the foundation of the temple is laid, will I begin to bless you. <coughs> so yes, is it here? You bet. We've not produced much either, have we? But it will happen if we serve God and repent and turn to Him. Haggai addresses this issue very clearly. Verse 36, Then hear you in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants and of your people Israel. That's what we're pleading for. That's what we're asking for. That's what we want to happen. So that God can move forward in peace in this place to build his temple. Forgive their sins that you teach them the good way wherein they should walk and give rain upon your land which you have given to your people for an inheritance. He promises us the former and latter rain will come in the first month. We've been looking at each year to see when that happens. I hope it's soon. <coughs> but all the things that Solomon is praying here are things that you and I are dealing with right now. Right now. Verse 37, if there be in the land famine, if there be pestilence, blasting, mildew, locust, or if there be caterpillar, if their enemy besiege them in the land of their cities, whatsoever plague, whatsoever sickness there be, what prayer and supplication soever be made by any man or by all your people Israel, which shall know every man the plague of his own heart and spread forth his hands toward this house. We turn to God and we turn toward his house. That's the way he says it has to be. Then, when they turn to you and they turn to the temple that you were about to build, hear you in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and do and give to every man according to his ways whose heart you know. For you, even you only, know the hearts of all the children of men. And God's going to sort it out. He'll sort 90% out right at the beginning. And when it comes time that the abomination is set up in the newly built Jerusalem, there will be another sorting out and praying for his forgiveness and being accounted worthy. And there may be even a final sorting in Zion, the place of safety, when Christ returns and the change comes. 
It'll be pretty well sorted out by then. But the sorting is happening and it is continuing. That they may fear you all the days that they live in the land which you gave to our fathers. God has drawn us to that land. And I am going to stay here. I am not going to leave it because God directed me here and He showed me where it is. And I am, by every fiber of my being, with God's help, going to stay and see it through. In spite of me and in spite of you and in spite of everything that comes against us because God says if you'll obey me, it will happen. And He will have peace in this place, one way or another. Moreover, concerning a stranger that is not of your people Israel, but comes out of a far country for your name's sake, Isaiah 45 says they'll come from Mitzrayim and Ethiopia and the Sabaeans, and from all over the world, north, south, east, and west. Same, same story, brethren. For they shall hear of your great name and of your strong hand and of your stretched out Arm when he shall come and pray toward this house. The latter temple. Hear you in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all that the stranger calls to you for. We've had a call from some people in Africa who don't know what to do. They've been through many organizations to this point. They've asked us to come and let us be part of them. It says there in Isaiah 45, they will join themselves to you and chain themselves to you, saying, God is with you. Emmanuel means God with us. God is going to move forward, brethren. And I hope we can all move forward with him and accomplish what he has for us to do. And that we will learn from Ezra and Nehemiah, from Haggai and Zechariah, and from 1 Kings 8 and 9. That they may know that this house which I have built is called by your name, the house of the great God. If your people go out to battle against their enemy, whithersoever you shall send them, and shall pray to the eternal toward the city which you have chosen, and toward the house that I have built for your name, then hear you in heaven their prayer and their supplication, and maintain their cause. If they sin against you, for there is no man that sins not... And you be angry with them and deliver them to the enemy so that they carry them away captives to the land of the enemy, far or near. And we've gone back into the captivity of Babylon. The church went back to Pentecostalism and evangelical and on and on it goes. Yet if they shall bethink themselves in the land where you, they were carried captives and repent and make supplication to you in the land of them that carried them captives, saying, We have sinned and have done perversely, we have committed wickedness. Instead of saying, we're Philadelphians, we're all right, the rest of you are going to hell in a handbasket. No, we have sinned. And so return to you with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies which led them away captive and pray to you toward their land. Let Jerusalem come to your mind, as Isaiah says. That land which you gave to their fathers, the city which you have chosen, and the house which I have built for your name. We are going to build it in the same place, in the same name that it was done before. 
Then hear you their prayer and their supplication in heaven, your dwelling place, and maintain their cause. Take their side. And forgive your people that have sinned against you and all their transgressions wherein they have transgressed against you. And give them compassion before them who carried them captive, that they may have compassion on them. Nothing wrong with asking God to protect us from our enemies and to give us good favor in their eyes. For they be your people and your inheritance, which you brought forth out of Mitzrayim from the midst of the furnace of iron. And that system of Satan is all over the world now, and God has drawn us out of it. That your eyes may be open to the supplication of your servant and to the supplication of your people, Israel, to hearken to them in all that they call for unto you. For you did separate them from among all the people of the earth to be your inheritance. Hasn't he called us out of this world to be part of his inheritance? A lot of wisdom clear back in Solomon's day with the very issues that we're addressing today in the New Testament. And you brought them out of Egypt. And it was so that when Solomon made an end of praying all this prayer and supplication... He rose from the altar of the Eternal, from kneeling on, on his knees with his hands spread to heaven. And he stood and blessed all the congregation of Israel with a loud voice, saying... I'll finish this up here a little bit. It's getting longer than I intended. Blessed be the Eternal that has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. There has not failed one word of all his good promise, which he promised by the hand of Moses his servant. Zechariah was written right out of the middle of Haggai began in the eighth month. Haggai's message started in the sixth month. And he said, don't be like your fathers who stoned the prophets. Don't do that. A general message given before verse 7. Then he got a specific message there in verse 7 on the uh, 11th month, 24th day, two months after the 924 proclamation of Haggai. Don't be like them. Listen. Here, don't deny the things that are being said. Verse 57, The eternal our God be with us as he was with our fathers. Let him not leave us nor forsake us. Christ told us that, didn't he, in the New Testament? Quoted directly from here. That he may incline our hearts to him. We need God to help incline our hearts because ours are inclined to selfishness, to self-preservation, to putting down others in order to feel better about ourselves if we have low self-esteem or whatever. He needs to incline our heart. We need to ask Him to help us have a pure and clean and right heart and a positive approach. And to keep His commandments and His judgments, or His statutes and His judgments, which He commanded our fathers. And let these my words, wherewith I have made supplication before the eternal be near to you, the eternal our God, day and night. Don't forget what I'm asking, he said. And he told the people that. That he maintained the cause and the cause of his people Israel at all times as a matter shall require, as needed. He says, we're the apple of his eye and a mother would forget her sucking child before he forgets us. And it's like the waters of Noah to him, sworn on his word that all the people of the earth may know that the Lord is God and that there is none else. That is the whole point of the whole exercise 
throughout the Bible and throughout the prophecies. They shall know that I am the Eternal. And He is going to use a people at the end of this age. He's using us right now to prepare a place for all these things to happen. And if He's called us to do it, we had better get it done. If we don't get it done, we will answer to Him. Because those people, that remnant, the leadership that will come, is depending on a place prepared. Don't abandon it. Don't abandon our calling. God called us here. He gave me a very direct, undeniable charge to do this job, in spite of myself, like Solomon. And, by opening your mind to it, He gave you the same calling. Do not despise the calling of God Almighty and be part of what he is doing to show the whole world that he is God.